Welcome to the Sex and Psychology Podcast, made with Zencaster. I am your host, Dr. Justin Miller. I am a social psychologist and research fellow at the Kinsey Institute and author of the book, Tell Me What You Want, The Science of Sexual Desire and How It Can Help You Improve Your Sex Life. On today's episode, we're going to be deconstructing the myth of the hormonal woman. Evolutionary psychologists have long argued that women's sexual behavior is driven by hormonal changes that occur throughout the menstrual cycle including everything from their desire for sex to their partner choice. However, they might have gotten it wrong. In fact, it might not be that the menstrual cycle is the driving force behind women's sexual behavior. Rather, it might go the opposite way around, with sex triggering changes in the cycle. We're going to explore what the research really says there, but we're also going to discuss how sex impacts the immune system, what does and doesn't work for boosting sexual desire, how to cope with sexual trauma, and so much more. I am joined today by Dr. Tierney Lorenz, an assistant professor in the Department of Psychology at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. She is a former Kinsey Institute trainee who studies the interaction between women's mental, physical, and sexual health. Among other things, she has studied how women's sexual behavior impacts the endocrine and immune systems, as well as ways to help women with mental or physical health conditions develop happier and healthier sex lives. I can't wait for this conversation, so let's dive right in. Hi, Tierney, and welcome to the Sex and Psychology Podcast. I'm thrilled to be here. Well, thank you so much for joining me. I am so looking forward to discussing the research. But before we dive into that, I'd like to ask you to tell us a little bit about your professional journey. So specifically, what drew you to sex research in the first place? How did you discover that this is something you wanted to study and do for a living? That's always a very tough question to answer because, you know, if you ask somebody, why are you interested in sex? I feel like everybody's interested in sex, (laughs) but more specifically kind of why I'm interested in the particular aspects of sexuality and sexual health that I'm interested in. Uh, I'm a clinical health psychologist by training and health psychologists are interested in the ways in which behavior influences people's mental and physical health. And something that's always kind of struck me as really remarkable is how little we know about how sexual behavior influences people's mental and physical health. So in the broader area of health psychology, um, sexual health, and in particular, women's sexual behavior is considerably less well understood. And so that's kind of what drove me to this area is that this is a, a really, really important health behavior about which we know very little, except in a very narrow range of contexts, right? So we know how sexual behavior influences people's risk for sexually transmitted infections, for example, but we know considerably less about how sexual behavior influences really basic aspects of our mental and physical health, like our immune function or our mood. But that kind of struck, always always struck me as, as, a, as a huge limitation of the research because sex and reproduction are just really critical drivers of our evolution. And so it would make sense that our bodies and our minds would respond to the sexual behaviors that we engage in. So that's kind of what drew me to this area in the first place. I love your answer and the first part about, well, why not study this, right? (laughs) Because I think most of us are pretty interested in sex and we want to know more about it. But as you mentioned, there's really still so much that we don't know and lots of fruitful directions for research to go in this area. So that's one of the nice things about being a sex researcher is that there's never any shortage of questions for you to answer that are of great interest and importance. Absolutely. 
So let's turn to your research, which I find to be so fascinating. And as a starting point, I want to talk about something that you and I have discussed before, which is that there has long been this assumption in the field of evolutionary psychology that where women are in their menstrual cycle really dictates their sexual behavior. And I've seen a ton of studies supporting this idea that have emerged over the years. And for example, some of these studies have reported that women are more sexually active when they're at the most fertile phase of their cycle, that heterosexual women go for different types of men when they're ovulating, that the frequency and content of women's sexual fantasies changes during ovulation. Uh, heck, there's even a study finding that women who work in strip clubs get bigger tips when they're ovulating. So, you know, there's this big body of research suggesting that the menstrual cycle changes that occur in hormones have this profound impact on women's sexual behavior. Now, you've said before that you think we might be overstating the impact of these hormonal changes on women's sexuality. So before we get into the specifics of what you found in your research, can you just tell us a little bit about what your take on this is in general? So is women's sexual behavior really so driven by hormonal changes? It's a it's a great question. So I think there's a lot of misconceptions about how hormones work and kind of what they do. Hormones are messengers that help different systems within the body communicate with each other. And they're fascinating, fascinating little creatures. They help to coordinate the brain's activity. They help to coordinate the brain's interactions with various different organ systems across the body. But it's really important to remember that hormones are subtle messengers, right? We say in endocrinology and social endocrinology, we say that hormones are facultative, not obligative. So what that translates to is that hormones are going to subtly shift the balance of certain kinds of behaviors. They're gonna subtly increase the likelihood of certain behaviors and decrease the likelihood of others. But there's very, very few examples of increasing a hormone always leads to a particular behavior or always shuts down a particular behavior. There's very, very few of those examples. And most of those have to do with really kind of discrete physiologic actions, like, you know, the certain things that happen during childbirth, for example, are coordinated through hormones. But generally speaking, when we're interested in like people's social behaviors, for example, the, the way that hormones act is by kind of changing the the balance of the decisions that we make. So the idea that women are driven by their hormones and that if they're in a particular hormonal state, then that is going to necessarily lead to uh, an increase in their behavior, regardless of what else is going on in their life, regardless of the social cues or their environment or their resources or all, you know, all these other things, is kind of silly because it really ignores the way that hormones work. Hormones are going to be very subtle in their action. And so I think a lot of this research has overstated the role of hormones in women's sexual behavior, simply because it just doesn't make sense given how we know hormones work. I think there's also way too much focus given to the role of the menstrual cycle in women's sexuality, which is hilarious given that that's where a lot of my research has been, that I would be saying <laughs> that. Um, but I think it's true. I think, 
given that if, if we're interested in the way that hormones influence sexual behavior and we're interested in the way that changes in hormones would influence changes in sexual behavior, I think that we should have equal focus on the diurnal changes that we see in certain hormones. So for example, men's testosterone changes quite a lot over the course of a day. It fluctuates in relationship to cortisol, which is another really important hormone that helps to kind of communicate about our body's stress levels. And so if you look at the degree of change in testosterone and cortisol over the course of a day, that is a pretty significant and substantial variation. And yet, understanding the differences in men's sexual desire over the course of a day does not seem to capture people's attention and interest <laughs> the way that understanding changes in sexual behavior over the course of the menstrual cycle does. And I think some of that has to do with this sort of historical background of treating women's cycles and treating the variation that we see in women's behavior over the course of their cycles as being determinate, right? Meaning, meaning that like their hormones dictate what they do. And, and there's this kind of historical perception of women as being like captive to their bodies and to the whims of nature and being these very you know, emotional beings who can't control their behavior, etc. I think another possible reason within specific to the field of psychology is that there's this idea that these effects of hormones on women's sexual desire would have a real evolutionary advantage. And that's certainly true that, you know, if women are engaging in sexual behavior during certain periods of time, particularly associated with fertility, then that could have really profound implications for women's reproductive fitness. But I think that that work has really focused a great deal on the reproductive function of sexual behavior when we know that the vast majority of sex that people have does not serve a reproductive function. And I think ignoring the fact that humans are particularly social sexual animals and that most of the sex that we have is for social purposes really does a, a disservice to our understanding of the way that sexual behavior evolved and the ways that the hormonal mechanisms that contribute to sexual desire evolved. I think there's been over-focus and over-interpretation of fertility as a driver of the way in which hormones evolved and the way in which sexual behavior evolved, and way less attention to things like sexual pleasure and intimacy within sexual relationships, which I think over our evolutionary past have been equally important. I think you make so many great points there, right? So there is this tendency for people to make all of these essentialist arguments about hormones. And, you know, if you experience this change in hormones, it's necessarily going to lead to this specific change in behavior. But as you stated, it's much more complex than that. And there's this interaction between the person and the environment and their hormones and what else is going on in their life. And so we can't just reduce everything to this look at what hormonal changes are happening right now and, you know, how is that linked to their sexual behavior. So thank you for, for sharing all of that. So something else that you've looked at in your research is, you know, maybe whether we've been focused on this wrong causal direction where we've been saying that, you know, hormones cause these changes in sexual behavior. But in the case of the menstrual cycle in particular, you've talked about how rather than menstrual cycle changes preceding changes in women's sexual behavior, it might be that women's sexual behavior can actually trigger changes in their menstrual cycle, which I think is kind of 
fascinating and going to be mind blowing <laughs> to a lot of people. So, you know, specifically having sex might even impact the timing of ovulation. So I'm curious if you can tell us a little bit more about that. And then also, I'm super curious about what are the implications of that, you know, if sex does change the timing of ovulation, you know, we know, for example, that many women who are trying to become pregnant, wait until ovulation begins to have sex. And that many women who don't want to get pregnant, sometimes check where they are in their cycle to determine the safer versus riskier times to have sex. But if sex can trigger ovulation, potentially, doesn't that suggest that we might need to think differently about all of that? So I realize that's a big question. But <laughs> just tell us a little bit about, you know, the link between having sex and timing of ovulation. Sure. So just as a, a quick point of clarification, the work that we've done has not necessarily looked at the timing of ovulation, but the presence of ovulation or the or um, whether or not somebody ovulates in a given cycle. I think one of the things that really blew my mind when I learned it was just the, the rate of anovulation amongst healthy people. So among folks who ovulate and menstruate regularly, about 15 to 20% of cycles are going to be anovulatory, even among people who are totally healthy. And what's more, among those folks, their menstrual cycles, right, the, the actual bleeding that they do, is going to look very typical for them in an anovulatory cycle versus an ovulatory cycle. So a person may not actually know whether or not that cycle was ovulatory. There would not necessarily be any discernible outward sign of that. You, you would have to actually measure that using hormonal measures directly. And so what we have looked at is whether being sexually active and when the timing of sexual activity happens within a cycle, whether that influences the rate of ovulation within a person. And we're not the only group that's done that. Actually, there have been a few studies over the years that have looked at similar kinds of designs. And one that I really want to give a big shout out to that I wish were better known is a study that's actually done by the National Institutes of Health from the NICHD specifically. This was the BioCycle study, and this was a really huge, well-representative study of uh, folks over multiple cycles, and they took many, many hormone measures and a lot of other measures as well. And one of the findings from that study corroborated some of the things that we found in our lab, which is that women who are sexually active, regularly sexually active, are more likely to have ovulatory cycles in any given cycle than be anovulatory. So basically being sexually active seems to trigger a higher rate of ovulation. And this is kind of not that surprising in the animal kingdom. There are many species where being sexually active is a signal to the body that they are reproductively viable or that could be reproductively viable and that, you know, times are good and resources are good and it might be time to reproduce. And so that can facilitate ovulation. And like I said, we're, we're definitely not the only species where this is the case. What's interesting is that amongst humans, it's, again, it's, it's very subtle right? And it is, it's not as one-to-one -one as it is in other mammalian species. So like in rodent models, for example, we see much more uh, tight link between the degree of sexual activity and the likelihood of ovulation in, in, in any given cycle. So a number of researchers have now found that if a woman is sexually active versus being sexually abstinent, that seems to change the balance, change the rate of ovulation. What we have found in our lab that's a little bit different from other studies is that the timing of sexual activity within the cycle also seems to matter. So if a woman is frequently sexually active in the first half of her cycle, 
that seems to be really important for cueing that cycle's rate of ovulation. But being sexually active in the back half of the cycle does not necessarily influence the likelihood of ovulating in the next cycle. So for folks who are specifically trying to conceive, who are trying to up their rate of ovulation, timing sexual activity to the front half of the cycle, the first two weeks uh, in the follicular phase, might be a way of kind of boosting the chances that that particular cycle is ovulatory. That is just so fascinating. <laughs> this is why I love talking to you, because you just blow my mind with everything that you say and all of this amazing work that you've done, you know, because it challenges some of these long-standing assumptions that people have had when it comes to fertility and contraception, you know, and like, when is the right time to have sex if you want to have a baby or not? And so, you know, I think it goes back to the fact that there's still so much that we don't know about sex and why we need to study these things in much more depth and detail, because I think a, a lot of the emerging sex research is challenging a lot of those longstanding assumptions. Absolutely. We, one of the most frequent questions that we get when we talk about this research and the research that we do looking at immune function and the ways that sexual behavior influences immune function, we often get asked, so what is it about sexual behavior? that is stimulating these changes? And how does the body know that you are sexually active? And to that, we really don't have great answers, right? We're able to document that this happens, that we, we, we can show this phenomenon. We've shown it now over multiple different studies, multiple different populations, in natural fertility samples, in Bolivian farm workers, you know, in all these different ways. But in terms of understanding the mechanisms, like what is it about being sexually active that is still really an open question. And I think there's a number of different ways that uh, sexual activity might have an influence, but we're still very much in the early days of understanding that. This is something, it hits at a point that I've talked about on previous podcasts, for example, when we've talked about the link between orgasm and you know how that might affect the immune system or other aspects of health and well-being. You know, if you have an orgasm, if it occurs through masturbation or partnered sex, how is your body going to know the difference? Like an orgasm is probably an orgasm in terms of its effects on the body. But what you're saying here is that there seems to be something specific to sexual activity in terms of how it's affecting the body. But you're, you're talking specifically about partnered sexual activity, right? Do you have controls for masturbation or not? In, yeah, in studies? so uh, in some of the studies that we've done, we've looked specifically at solo sexual activity versus partnered sexual activity. And we also take a look at if folks are using barrier contraception versus mm -hmm. no barrier contraception, because potentially being exposed to a partner's microbiome could potentially trigger some of these effects. Being sexually active with a male partner versus a female partner versus a non-binary partner. You know, so we have looked a little bit at some of these different dimensions. Generally speaking, what we have found is that it seems to be about being sexually aroused, that's kind of our first idea, is that it's about the process of becoming sexually aroused. And so to the best of what we're able to find so far, there doesn't seem to be a huge difference between solo sex versus partnered sex. There are some subtle differences. So for example, we found in one study, we found that folks who use barrier contraception versus no barrier contraception do have differences in certain kinds of antibody production following sexual activity. And in another study, we were looking at folks who were 
partnered and having partnered sex versus folks who were partnered but in long-term relationships or in uh, long-distance relationships rather and so we're not having sex so kind of controlling for partnership status and the social support but looking at specifically the partnered sex rates. And in those studies, we also do find some subtle differences in the ways that the immune system operates, particularly how it changes over the course of the menstrual cycle. But generally speaking, it does seem to be driven largely as a function of sexual arousal per se. Mm, Fascinating. Yeah. So that would suggest that maybe there's not going to be a big difference between the solo sex and partnered sex in terms of the effects it's going to have. Yeah. Except insofar as if your partner sex is uh, causing a different level of arousal (laughs) than your solo sex, then we would potentially expect that it might differ there. (laughs) Depends what you're doing when you're masturbating is the takeaway I'm going to take from that. (laughs) Interesting. Okay. And that's just giving me so many ideas for future research studies that we need to do. So you mentioned about how sexual behavior can impact the immune system. And as I've discussed with you before, you've described the immune system as being socially aware in the sense that it recognizes when we have sex and it reacts. So can you tell us a little bit more about what you found in terms of how women's sexual behavior impacts something like antibodies throughout the body? Sure. So a lot of the research that we have done has looked at the ways that sexual behavior influences changes in immune function over the course of the cycle. So the way that I like to think about this is that the reproductive system has kind of a fundamental dilemma, right? On the one hand, the immune system's job is to identify potential pathogens, any kind of cell that it doesn't recognize, and to fight against anything that it doesn't recognize as being part of the cell, right? That's the whole point of the immune system. On the other hand, if the immune system accidentally attacks a sperm or a a conceptus before it has the chance to implant, then that person's not going to reproduce and their genes are not going to make it into the gene pool to perpetuate evolution. So there has to be some trade-offs in how the immune system acts, particularly within the reproductive system. And what we have found is that sexual activity seems to, again, very subtly, um, shift that balance of decision-making that the immune system makes about whether or not to invest in really non-specific defenses versus highly specific defenses. So defenses that could potentially accidentally interfere with reproduction, but are generally cheaper and easier to maintain versus highly specific, highly tuned defenses that are less likely to interfere with reproduction, but are really quite energetically costly to maintain. And so what we have found is that among women who are sexually abstinent, there's relatively less change. There's relatively little change in immune function over the course of the menstrual cycle essentially just kind of always maintaining a relatively high level of nonspecific defense. But among women who are sexually active, we see really significant changes over the course of the menstrual cycle. So much higher levels of nonspecific defense in the early and late parts of the cycle, and then a significant decrease in those nonspecific defenses right around the time of ovulation, right? So right around the time of maximum fertility. And essentially what this is doing is it's allowing the body to maintain its high level of defense, but then selectively downregulating those defenses right around 
around the time that it would be most important to not accidentally attack sperm, not accidentally attack the conceptus. What's really fascinating to me is that those changes appear to be dependent on a woman's level of sexual activity. So if she is sexually active, the body says, ah, this is probably, this is a sign that I might get pregnant. And so I need to engage these shifts, right? But if she's sexually abstinent, it's, it's highly unlikely that she will become pregnant that cycle, right? To the best of my knowledge, there's only one of those cases documented mm-hmm. that a virgin became pregnant. And so very, very unlikely. And so it really doesn't make sense to um, downregulate your defenses because you're just not going to get pregnant that cycle. So this is what I mean by socially aware is that the immune system is using social behavior, right? Sex is a social behavior. It's using this information to kind of make predictions about what it is going to need to do later on in the cycle, which is interesting, you know, purely from the sexology perspective, right? That's kind of like a fascinating finding that sexual behavior influences the way that the immune system works. But it has really profound implications beyond sexuality. It indicates that our immune system is using information about social behavior to predict what it might experience down the road. That is absolutely fascinating, the way our bodies work. And, you know, I've, I've talked before about the link between sex and the immune system, and you've specifically studied it in women. Do you know anything about, are there immune system effects in men when they are sexually active that would parallel this at all? I know that, you know, we're talking about different bodies and, you know, one sex can become pregnant and the other can't. So, but are, are there impacts on the male immune system as well? Um, There has been a little bit of work done in that area. There have been a few studies that look at arousal and orgasm and the ways that it influences various aspects of inflammation. There's not been a ton done in men. We've really focused our efforts on women. uh, And partially that's just because of our interests in understanding the way that it interacts with the reproductive system. Mm -hmm. Um, That said, we do have a few studies right now that are going to be launching soon where we're interested in understanding post-orgasmic illness syndrome, which Mm -hmm. is a rare condition in which following orgasm and particularly following ejaculation Folks experience really significant illness symptoms, kind of like getting the flu and also some cognitive symptoms, all of which are consistent with a a strong inflammatory response. It's not to say that uh, POS is only experienced in men, but it is predominantly experienced in men. And so we're kind of interested in understanding the ways in which POS can, can occur and how that might influence our understanding of kind of how, how sexual behavior, sexual arousal, orgasm influences kind of a, a lot of different aspects of the immune system. But uh, outside of that, we really haven't done a lot of work in men. So interesting. Now, we have much more to discuss, including coping with sexual trauma effectively and how physical, mental, and sexual health all intersect. But first, a quick break for a word from our sponsors. If you're running a podcast, you need the most reliable and high-quality recording program out there, which is why I use Zencaster. It's easy to use, and you're going to love the results. Sign up today for a free two-week trial and use my exclusive discount code, SEXANDPSYCH, to save 40% off their professional plan. Visit Zencaster.com to learn more. That's Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R dot com. Looking to boost your bedroom game? Promescent is here to help you have better sex. Check out their signature delay spray, which has been clinically shown to help men last longer in bed. 
They also have a female arousal gel, lubricants, Vitaflex supplements, and so much more. Promescent offers a 60-day money-back guarantee, free shipping on orders over $10, and discreet packaging to guarantee privacy. Learn more and place your order at promescent.com. That's P-R-O-M-E-S-C-E-N-T dot com. And we're back. I'm speaking with sex researcher, Dr. Tierney Lorenz. Another topic that I wanted to get into with you is sexual desire. Now, we've talked a bit about hormones today. And, you know, there's been this idea that testosterone is the hormone of sexual desire. And so over the years, many women have been prescribed testosterone supplements in order to boost sexual desire. And we also know that the pharmaceutical company has been working recently to try and find a drug that can boost women's sexual desire. This is not testosterone-based, but it's trying to modify brain chemicals to boost sexual desire. And the most well-known one on the market currently is called flibanserin. I'm curious to hear your take, though, as to what you think we should be doing when it comes to treating low sexual desire in women. And to what extent do you think that hormone replacement with, say, testosterone or drug treatments like flibanserin, do you think that these are the key to dealing with this issue? Or are there other maybe more effective ways of boosting low sexual desire? So setting aside flibanserin for a moment, because it has a very different mechanism of action, kind of the first question about hormone replacement therapy, I think it's important to really sharply differentiate the difference between giving hormones to somebody who is hypogonadal, that is like whose body is not producing enough of these hormones naturally, versus somebody who's, you know, eugonadal, meaning that their body produces these hormones at a, at a normal rate, and then trying to boost that to super physiologic or, or more than what the body would usually make. So what time and time again, we have found both in men and women is that having really low levels of these reproductively relevant hormones like testosterone, estrogen, progesterone, having really low levels of these hormones does seem to be associated with problems with sexual functioning. Oftentimes in women, those manifest actually more so in sexual arousal and in just being able to maintain the, the vaginal epithelium well. So for example, in folks who have menopausal symptoms, uh, general urinary symptoms of menopause and, and vulvar atrophy, using medications to help boost the levels of hormones back to where they were premenopausally can help to rebuild certain parts of the reproductive system, help to create a, a healthy, happy vagina, help to promote lubrication. That in turn can boost sexual arousal, reduce sexual pain, and that can have a really profound effect on people's sexual desire simply because if you're having really crappy sex that's painful and you know distressing, uh, then you're not gonna want that very much. <laughs> So not surprisingly, when we help people to have healthy, happy vaginas, they will say that that improves their sexual functioning. So I think that's sort of qualitatively different from these claims that you sometimes see that boosting your testosterone or boosting your estrogen is going to improve your sex drive if you are at a, a normal level. I think that has very, very little evidence to support it. And, and time and time again, study after study shows that giving people super physiologic doses, meaning like two or three times what the body would naturally produce, doesn't really increase your desire beyond just bringing you up from a very, very low level, you know, to a, to a normal level would do. It's not a linear effect, in other words. 
So I'm highly skeptical of claims that hormone treatments are going to be the answer broadly across all women. I think it's going to be really helpful for a minority of women who are hypogonadal. In terms of other medications, I think there's a lot of promise in understanding the you know, basic neurophysiologic pathways that contribute to sexual desire. But I think we are a long, long, long way from having models that support drug development. You know, flibanserin has some data to suggest that it improves sexual desire for some people, for some subsets of people. I think I'm more convinced again of the idea that there might be a small subset of people for whom the particular neurochemical pathways that flibanserin acts on are you know, a primary cause of those folks' sexual desire dysfunction, I think that's going to be a small minority of people. I think much, much, much more likely that there's going to be a range of different possible etiologies for low sexual desire. And therefore, our treatment approaches are going to need to address multiple different potential causes. I think if we had to put all of our eggs into one basket, a much better basket to put into would be reducing stress levels. Because <laughs> stress, particularly chronic stress, is the biggest libido killer ever <laughs> in, in any dimension. There's been study after study that suggests that chronic stress impacts a whole host of other physiologics and psychological systems that in turn could impair sexual desire. So I think if I were trying to develop one treatment that would be more likely to help the majority of people who are suffering from low sexual desire, I would really try and focus more on stress and stress regulation and stress management. And to some extent, that is going to be something that you could treat at an individual level, you know, and help individual people to learn better stress management and to help, you know, regulate the physiologic effects of stress in their life through exercise, through different kinds of behavior modification. But to a certain extent, also, I think we really need to be thinking of it as a system level issue as well. Um, there was an amazing paper that came out recently on the heteronormativity theory of low sexual desire and really kind of pointing out that a lot of the causes of low desire have to do with the way that our, our gender roles kind of disproportionately put women in positions of chronic stress, right? They're having to care, they're having to perform more childcare, they're having to do second shift labor, they're having to emotionally care for their male partners as if their male partners were children in some ways, you know, and all of these things add to our stress load and really kill our sex drive. And so again, I think really having a system level approach is going to be much more effective and going to affect a lot more people than any individual treatment that we could possibly derive. Totally agree. And, you know, I think there is this temptation to want to just find a pill that can fix our problems when it comes to sex, because it's a lot easier than addressing these other systemic issues that play a big role in, in producing sexual difficulties. So Absolutely. totally with you on that point. And, and I empathize, you know, I am a clinician as well. And I empathize when my patients say like, yeah, you're telling me reduce my stress, but like easier said than done. Can't you just give me a pill? <laughs> right. I, I completely empathize. You know, that's, that's tremendously difficult where we're asking for, you know, literal world change. <laughs> yeah. But I think 
the 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 evidence is just not there yet to support that medication is going to be effective for the majority of people and so I try to set realistic expectations with folks about what they can reasonably expect to see with those kinds of treatments. Even though that might not be exactly what they want to hear, I think you're doing them a valuable service. Now, as I mentioned at the top of the show, some of your work explores the interaction between physical, mental, and sexual health in women. And I think one of the best demonstrations of this from your work is the research you've done on antidepressants. So you published research looking at how antidepressant use can induce sexual difficulties in women, with other studies finding that exercise can improve sexual functioning in women who are taking antidepressants. So treatment for a mental health issue, i.e. antidepressants, can impact sexual health, but you can potentially blunt this impact by improving your physical health, right? So can you tell us a little bit more about this work and kind of how physical, mental, and sexual health are all intimately intertwined? I think it's an important point because, you know, all too often, when we have, say, a sexual problem, we just want to focus on our sexual health and how we do that. But we also have to address the mental health and physical health component at the same time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so taking a really broad view, when we think about sexual health, it is really supported by mental and physical health. From an evolutionary perspective, our reproduction is the thing that is not immediately necessary for our survival. And so is generally going to sort of take a back seat to our ability to survive the day, right? And so the first thing that folks should really be focusing on if they're trying to improve their sexual health is trying to improve their mental and their physical health. You know, and the things that we generally find improve sexual desire and sexual arousal in, in many people are going to be the things that also improve your mental and physical health more broadly. So things like physical activity, not being sedentary, eating a healthy, varied diet that you know kind of helps to reduce the strain on your cardiovascular system, which is really important for arousal, reducing your stress, as I mentioned. So all of these things are really critical foundations. And again, I think if we're going to be addressing the kinds of treatments that are going to affect the most people, really trying to get people into happy, healthy mental and physical health lives is, is, is a great place to start. The exercise work that we've done is very specific to looking at antidepressant sexual side effects. There's a lot of research to suggest that exercise in and of itself can have an antidepressant effect. And so it's maybe not that surprising that you know, engaging in regular physical activity can help to reduce the primary effects of depression. But what we've been really interested in is understanding the ways that exercise could be used to specifically target the physiologic systems, the physiologic uh, underpinnings of female sexual arousal. So one of the things that my uh, mentor, Cindy Meston, has found is that um, moderate levels of sympathetic nervous system activation that is your fight or flight system, the system that is responsible for your physical arousal, both during sex, but also during you know emotions and during your fight or flight response, that moderate levels of sympathetic activation appear to facilitate women's sexual arousal or vaginal sexual arousal, I should say. And so 
when people take antidepressants, certain kinds of antidepressants, particularly certain kinds of SSRIs, can suppress activation of the sympathetic nervous system. In the context of treating depression, this is actually a really good thing because folks with depression tend to have chronically elevated sympathetic nervous system activity. You know, it's their body is just kind of carrying around a sort of high level of stress at all times, high level of, of physiologic arousal. And so dampening that down can be really helpful in treating some of the kind of agitation and anxiety side effects of having depression or anxiety. So great in that context, but what that also means is that it can make it really, really hard to have your body become the kind of aroused that you want to have during sexual arousal. And in particular, it seems to really interfere with the highest levels of arousal. So achieving high level of arousal and or orgasm. A lot of patients that I've seen have described it as they can get a little bit aroused and then they kind of get to this point where they're like all dressed up, but no place to go. Like they just can't get over that hump mm -hmm. as it were. And so what we've done is we've used exercise as a way of boosting sympathetic nervous system activity right before somebody engages in sex. So we've done a couple of studies where we have people either just exercise in general, you know, whenever. So trying to get some of the good mood effects, good physical health effects of exercising. And then we have them engage in exercise immediately before their sexual activity, right? So we're comparing the effects of just exercising in general to exercising in a way that stimulates the sympathetic nervous system right before you hop into bed. And what we found is that, not surprisingly, exercising seems to improve sexual functioning amongst folks who are taking antidepressants, regardless of when. But the exercising immediately before sexual activity has an additional benefit above and beyond the same exact amount of exercise that happens at different times. So what that really is indicating is that this acute effect of activating the sympathetic nervous system right before you have sex seems to kind of partially mitigate some of the suppression effects that we see associated with antidepressants. So it's one of those things where Again, it's a subtle effect. You know, when we when we look at these clinical trials, we're able to kind of pull out the statistical significance there. But it's one of these things where the worst thing that could happen if you give it a try is that you start exercising more, which is kind of like, oh, well. So I, I feel comfortable, you know, broadly recommending that to people because it's just a good idea for all of us to be a little bit more active anyways. Yeah. So maybe schedule your sex for right after you go to the gym and give it a try. I'm also wondering to what extent that might be also partially a product of excitation transfer or misattribution of arousal, because when people exercise, it creates that heightened state of generalized physiological arousal. And we know that when people are in that state, that if they then see somebody really attractive or, you know, there's something sexually arousing, it becomes even more arousing because they might be misattributing their arousal to that other source rather than to the exercise that they just did. So it, it could be that that might be part of what is, is going on in those situations as well. It's possible that that's a piece of it. But when we do these studies, usually we are measuring vaginal sexual arousal using the vaginal photoplethysmograph, which is a highly specific measure for vaginal blood flow. And mm -hmm. it's been shown to be specific to sexual arousal as opposed to other forms of arousal, other forms of activation, you know, associated with, for example, fear or even just exercising. Mm -hmm. 
So we do know that it does seem to be specific to having sexual cues presented. Now that said, you know, there's a certain amount to which when we are in a sexual situation, we really, to the extent that we pay attention to our bodies and kind of notice like, oh, my heart is really beating fast and I'm, you know, I'm like really energized right now. Like I, I can definitely see a space for that being interpreted as kind of a, a sense of one's subjective overall level of arousal. And that in turn could contribute to people's sense of subjective sexual arousal. But the measures that we really have looked at have been specific to vaginal arousal. And that's a lot harder to influence using excitation transfer. Yeah, makes total sense. So I know we're running short on time, but I have one other question I wanted to ask you about, which is that you've done some research on sexual trauma in women, including the link between sexual trauma and sexual functioning. And we know that trauma sometimes has this profound long-term impact on sexuality and that many people really struggle to move past it. So what have you found in your work in terms of how people who have a history of sexual trauma can perhaps cope more effectively and cultivate happier and healthier sex lives? Because we know sexual trauma is all too common and it's, it's really a struggle for a lot of people. So what, what can we do? Great questions. So I think it's important to remember that sexual trauma is gonna influence people's minds, bodies, and spirits. And I think each of those potentially could require a different approach. So in terms of mind, we have found over a number of studies that experiencing unwanted sexual activity, either forced or coerced, has influences in the ways that people think and feel about themselves as sexual beings. We call this sexual self-schema, right? So this is a schema is a way of organizing information and kind of understanding the world. And so a sexual self-scheme is kind of understanding yourself as a sexual being and kind of organizing information about what your sexual self looks like. And so we found that survivors of sexual assault uh, and childhood sex abuse have very different sexual self-schema than folks who've not experienced those things. In particular, women who have a history of sexual assault tend to separate intimacy from their sexual self-schema and kind of put that on a different shelf and then keep their sexuality piece of themselves very separate. Whereas women who don't have those histories are more likely to kind of experience those together. And so one of the things that we have done to try and help folks in kind of having a positive view of their own sexuality is use expressive writing techniques. So this is a technique that's been used across a variety of different kinds of trauma and essentially just having folks write in a dedicated way, in a non-censored way, just really kind of speaking their minds and really kind of focusing on that for 20 minutes a day over this course of five sessions and just writing continuously. So even if that means just writing like, I don't know what to write over and over again, really writing continuously in this uncensored way gets people to really think very deeply about the ways that their sexual trauma has influenced how they feel about themselves, how they feel about intimacy, how they feel about um, power and control and self-esteem and so on. And so having people engage in expressive writing does seem to have some pretty profound impacts, even just in that very short period of time on people's sexual self-scheme, the way that they think and feel about themselves. 
So that's one thing to give a shot, to give a try, is to engage in expressive writing either with a therapist or on your own, and specifically to really focus your writing in on the impact of the trauma on how you are now and kind of how you think about yourself as a sexual being now. So that's sort of the mental piece of it. In terms of the physical effects, we've also done a, a fair amount of work looking at the ways that sexual trauma changes how women's bodies interpret sexual cues. So even if folks don't necessarily have PTSD or really significant psychological triggering following sexual trauma, we do still actually find some differences in the way that their body interprets sexual information. And then in turn, how that triggers certain physiologic responses. So even among women who are not particularly distressed by their history of sexual trauma, they're more likely to respond to sexual cues with that fight or flight response. So remember earlier, I was saying that moderate levels of sympathetic activation facilitate arousal. Well, if your body is interpreting a sexual cue, even a wanted sexual cue, as a potential sign of threat because of your prior history, it's more likely to shoot you out of that moderate range and into the high level. That's too high to really facilitate arousal and, and can kind of, again, signal a lot of these stress effects in the body. And so one of the things that we found is that helping folks to kind of attend to their physical arousal, modulate their stress levels, kind of bring themselves back into the moment and specifically try to find cues that indicate that now is different from then. So finding ways to ground in the present moment and mentally differentiate, I am safe in this moment, things are different from that moment, and kind of help the brain to be able to distinguish between sex as a good cue of potential pleasure versus as a potential threat seems to lower the level of physiologic arousal that folks have when they're engaging in sexual situations, and then in turn helps them to be able to have just more pleasurable sex while they're there. Well, thank you for sharing all of that. I think that is all incredibly great and helpful advice because, as we said, sexual trauma is all too common and a lot of people really struggle with it. And so we really need those empirically grounded methods and techniques for helping to work through this more effectively. Thank you for this amazing conversation. It was a pleasure to have you here and learn from you. As usual, you've blown my mind again. <laughs> and you're just, you're, you're so much smarter than me. So you, you should be running your own podcast because you've got all of the information to share. But can you please tell my listeners where they can go to learn more about you and your work? Sure thing. You can find us on Twitter. We are at lab underscore wish. We are the wish lab, women, immunity, and sexual health lab. And that's where we post information about our new papers, upcoming papers. And we'd love to hear from folks with their questions or interest in our research. Well, great. Thank you for sharing that. And thank you again for your time. I really appreciate having you here. Also, thank you to my listeners. To keep up with new episodes of this podcast, visit my website, Sex and Psychology at sexandpsychology.com or subscribe on your favorite platform where I hope you'll take a moment to rate and review the show. You can also follow me on social media for daily sex research updates. I'm on Twitter at Justin Laymiller and Instagram at Justin J. Laymiller. Also, be sure to check out my book, Tell Me What You Want. Thanks again for listening. Until next time. <laughs>